Hello, I'm David Mosgraf. Welcome to Open to Debate. In June, this year became the worst wildfire season in Canadian history. Fires burned throughout the country. And there's almost surely more to come. So far, over 10 million hectares have burned, sending toxic smoke from province to province and into the United States, where tens of millions of people were put under air quality advisories. The smoke caused some of the worst, on some days the worst, air quality in the world in major North American cities, including New York and Toronto. The 2023 wildfire season, driven by what's known as fire weather, may be a window into our future. As climate change runs amok and hotter, drier temperatures make wildfires more common and harder to control, we risk having to endure a brutal, deadly, and ecologically destructive new normal. So what does fire weather mean for our future? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is John Valent, journalist and author of Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast. But before we get to the conversation, a quick programming note. This will be our last episode until the week after Labor Day, so we'll see you back here on September 12th. Let's start by talking about precisely what fire weather is, because it's such an evocative term. And you open the book with an epigraph from the National Weather Service, noting that they issue a fire weather watch, which, which isn't really something I had thought of before this year. In fact, having lived in, uh, even though I've lived in Vancouver in the past, what is fire weather? And then I want to get into, in fact, what a wildfire itself is too. Yeah. Um, so fire weather, it's a technical term. It's a, it's a fire fighting and fire watching term uh, that happens, you know, to my ear anyway, to be very poetic and, and beautiful and, and really appropriate for the era that we have come into now. Uh, and fire weather is, uh, the fire weather index is an, an aggregate of a number of different indices, which include temperature, um, wind speed, uh, but more particularly relative humidity. Uh, and then there are all these ways of measuring uh, different um, aspects of the forest. So there's duck, there's a duck moisture code, which is basically surface litter, leaves, duff, pine needles on the surface of the forest floor. Then there is um, uh, deeper soil uh, measurements for dryness. They also measure the um, dryness of, of actual logs and trees. And so you, there's, a, there's a, a, a whole index of, of numbers. Uh, and there may be six or eight of these numbers that they then aggregate. And the aggregate number is the fire weather index, the FWI. And in Canada, I think it may vary uh, from country to country, but the one I'm most familiar with is Canada. And in Canada, 25, a fire weather index FWI of 25 or so is considered high. You know, you, you probably wouldn't be wanting to make a campfire or you'd be, you'd be cautious. 33 is extreme. So that's, you know, the, 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 the smoky bear arrow all the way over into the red. No fires. Be really careful. You know, take care of your cigarette butts and all that. And so if 33 is extreme, the fire weather index code, for example, on May 3rd, 2016, when a wildfire entered the city of Fort McMurray from the southwest, uh, it was about 38. So it was off the chart. It would then 
increase through that week, through that actually terrible two weeks in which the fire beset that city uh, up to 42. And again, remembering 33 is extreme, 25 or so is high. It's now into the 40s, which is a really scary place. And and what it takes to to get there is, you know, let's forget about duff moisture. Let's forget about that stuff. And let's just think about relative humidity, which is the ambient humidity of the air. On uh, May 3rd, it was 11%. And what does that mean? Well, 11% is drier than Death Valley is in July. So normal, like the relative humidity when I was in Vermont uh, last week, lots of rain, was about 97%. You know, super humid. If you're in Ottawa, you know all about it. Anyone from the East knows all about it. Uh, out here, normal relative humidity is, you know, 25, 30, 45%. So you drop that down to 11. Everything is tinder dry, drier than a matchstick. On that same day, the temperature was uh, 33 Celsius. So that's over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, those are Southern California temperatures. Those are not boreal in northern Alberta temperatures. But what those do is they tweak the fuel so that an already normally flammable environment like the boreal forest, which is made to burn literally, suddenly becomes explosively flammable. So what would have caught on fire and burned very, very well at 12 Celsius with 25% humidity is now burning like someone sprayed it with gasoline. And I want to get into how wildfires start because, I mean, some folks are confused about this. They say, no, no, you know, it's people are just flicking cigarette butts. This isn't a climate problem. Um, but obviously, the, the underlying issue here is, is conditions exacerbate, make more likely, and make harder to fight wildfires, right? So how might we describe what the, the proximate cause of a wildfire is? versus the broader context in which they emerge worse than they would have otherwise been. I'm really glad you asked that, David. Uh, I get a certain amount of pushback from a certain kind of uh, Twitter person. Uh, if they are people, I don't really know. Uh, uh, and they say, arson, arson, arson. There have always been fires. Less area is being burned now than... Uh, and, and all of those are you know, interesting. They are factors. Arson is a real thing, and it is a terrible crime, and um, it does happen, and it is a cause of wildfires in Canada. It is not a major cause. Uh, the most common cause, especially in the North, where there are very few human beings, is lightning. And what happens when you increase temperature, uh, even by a one degree Celsius, you increase the likelihood of lightning by, I think, like 7 or 12%, a measurable amount. And so when you have temperatures all across Alaska, all across Alberta, BC, Northern Canada, uh, Northern Canada um, 10 degrees Celsius above the norm, you're going to have a lot more lightning. Uh, so where you might have had hundreds of strikes, now you're going to have thousands of strikes. And that's what BC is getting right now. A number of those fires are started by lightning. There's really nothing you can do about it. Now, 80% um, of wildfires around settled areas are caused by human beings, not by psychotic arsonists, but just by human beings do what, doing what human beings do, which is making campfires, uh, 
running ATVs and motorcycles in dry grass, um, smoking, all kinds of things. You know, maybe you left your mirror out, you know, I mean, I mean all, they're all uh, types of fires around settled areas that start because human beings have been there in some form or another. Um, and those are the two, those are the two primary ways that fires start, but it doesn't really matter how a fire starts. What's a lot more interesting and important to us now is how fires burn and, and what makes them burn in that way. And uh, what makes them burn in that way and with such intensity as they are now doing in British Columbia, just blowing through all the records as they did in Alberta, burning more area by mid-May than has ever been burned by that date in history. Uh, Quebec is also off the charts. Uh, Nova Scotia, you know, I, I think set a couple of records last month, um, is heat and dryness. And, you know, and that's where I say it, it sounds glib to say it. Uh, because climate science is a sophisticated science, but at its root, in terms of how it affects us, I would say that climate science ain't rocket science. When you make things hotter, you're going to get more evaporation. And just think of your laundry. When you throw a bed sheet out on a rainy day, you know, your laundry, it's going to stay wet. If you throw it out on a sunny day, it's going to dry pretty quickly. If you throw it out on a hot sunny day, it's going to dry even faster. If you throw it out on a hot sunny uh, windy day, it's going to be dry in 15 minutes. And the forest floor is really similar to that. And surface grass is really similar to that. And your own garden, if you're near a flammable area, is also really similar to that. And so it's simple. And, and, and then the question is, why is it getting hotter? And that is, that's the $64 billion, probably $64 trillion mm -hmm. question that is going to dog us for the rest of this century. I want to get into that question and, and that will indeed dog us. Uh, first, I want, to, uh, I want to talk a bit about the 2016 wildfire that went through Fort McMurray because it is truly an extraordinary story uh, told extraordinarily well in this book. Can you, you've already mentioned how it was remarkable in, in terms of the fire weather index. It was also remarkable for the extraordinary damage uh, that it uh, left in its wake. Can you run us through a little bit about how the fire progressed and how it eventually abated or how it rather we, we fought it? Yeah. So we, we talked about this fire weather index. You already have preternaturally dry conditions in a forest system, the boreal forest system that is made to burn. That's how it regenerates itself because some of the tree species there will not regenerate until their cones have been heated to temperatures beyond what sunlight alone can achieve. They need to burn to make the cones pop open and the seeds pop out. And that tells the seeds, canopy's open, ground is clear, this is my moment uh, to germinate. So that's what boreal forests do anyway is burn. But again, you, you've got a fire weather index of 42 or 38, and now you have a, a flammable system that's turned into an explosively flammable system. A fire started almost certainly human-caused uh, about five miles southwest of Fort McMurray on May 1st. Um, Alberta Forestry is very good at what they do. They have some of the best forest firefighters in the world. They had the forecasts, which were excellent, very flammable conditions for northern Alberta. So when that smoke plume popped up, they were on it. They got a helicopter with a bucket over it. They got firefighters in there. They had bombers on the way. And even though they picked that thing up probably within half an hour of its ignition, around four in the afternoon on May 1st, they could not put it out. 
It was windy that afternoon. It really started to move and they could not stop it. And, you know, what, what makes these fires um, so difficult uh, to subdue is not just the intensity of the, of the flame and the speed of the spread, but when you throw even 15 or 20 knots of wind in there, you've got embers. And again, you, you throw a cigarette out on a rainy day, you've got nothing to worry about. You throw a cigarette out when it's 33 Celsius, 11% humidity, and that cigarette is going to sit there and smolder and smolder and smolder, and it's going to light anything at all close by on fire. So these embers now, which would go out on a damp day, which would go out on a rainy day, are now flying for kilometers, and they're landing everywhere. And because they're landing on such receptive, explosively dry ground, they don't just smolder, they light up, and suddenly, poof, 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 uh, and so now, you know, the, the analogy that, you know, seemed appropriate to me was you can be confronting that fire effectively and strenuously, just as a medieval army could be uh, uh, opposing, you know, attackers on the field. But you, there's nothing you can do about the archers in the forest who were hidden out of sight with those flaming tips. And they just goes right over the battlefield and into the village. And, there's, and so defeat comes from behind. And that's uh, that is ultimately what happened. And that fire raged and grew um, with enormous intensity, frightening intensity that wildfire manager Schmidt, um, Bernie Schmidt, had recalled from one other occasion, uh, which was the Chisholm fire of 2001, which happens to be the most intense fire ever measured anywhere on Earth. And he saw a connection early on to the potential of that fire. And yet, the city of Fort McMurray, the the wildfire crews protecting Fort McMurray, fought that fire in a very traditional way, and were overcome, were overwhelmed by it. What was the ultimate cost? Uh, I'm thinking both in terms of there's obviously extraordinary human cost. Uh, I'm thinking about fires right now as we learn of of deaths of firefighters. Uh, just before recording, there was another death of a helicopter pilot. It is. Uh, gut-wrenching and tragic. The human cost comes to mind first. And then, of course, there's also a cost to an economic cost, which ultimately is also a human cost as people then struggle. Um, what was the cost of that 2016 fire? Um, there's so many metrics. It's almost like a fire weather index, you know, almost, you know, pick pick your metrics. So, you know, in terms of, of numbers, in terms of insurance payouts, you know, I think it was around $10 billion. Certainly, the most uh, expensive natural, you know, "quote unquote" natural disaster in Canadian history. Uh, the the Alberta, the Calgary flood of 2013, you know, was was its competitor until it blew past it. Um, and then, you know, there's there's all these other costs in terms of, you know, I think there's a, a murky world of lawsuits around uh, oil company profits and losses uh, that you know I think has been underreported. Um, but is certainly active, uh, and so and you know who knows what the what that actual number really is. Um, but there's a, you know another cost in terms of of structures damaged. You know, 2,500 structures were burned, were destroyed. That include people's homes and and garages, but also entire work camps uh, were incinerated. You know, 600 unit work camps were completely destroyed. Um, on top of that, 
because the city was disinhabited for a month, no other city besides New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina has been disinhabited for so long in North America. And that is, you know, you never would think of Fort McMurray and New Orleans being sister cities, but in that regard, they are. And so as uh, those uh, houses were left untended for a month, uh, there was heat damage from other burning homes. There was water damage from, you know, firefighting efforts, which were minimal, frankly, because there wasn't much you could do and the water evaporated 100 meters before it hit any flame there anyway. Uh, but there was also vermin. There was also shrapnel damage, frankly, from exploding um, propane tanks and and all all other manner of things that one has in an in, in an industrial town where so many of the workers are tradespeople. Um, so uh, and then you had even months later a house that appeared to be untouched, unaffected. Um, joints would fail, electrical wiring would short out, plumbing uh, would start leaking. And it, you know, and what, what's hard to wrap our heads around, there are two, two things I wanted to, to mention here that, that might convey the intensity of what happened, not just on May 3rd, but literally for days afterward. There were serial firestorms that swept through Fort McMurray. It wasn't just a one-day deal, which is the normal schedule for a big, or even in a big urban fire. So when that fire came out of the forest on, on, at lunchtime on May 3rd, it was projecting heat of about 500 Celsius. So that's hotter than Venus. And radiant heat moves at the speed of light. It's radiant heat is what you feel when you put your hand close to a candle. It's, you know, invisible, uh, but it projects enormous energy. And so even before the flames got into the neighborhoods, the houses and the trees were desiccated way beyond uh, combustion temperatures. So when uh, the fire got in there, these houses and trees were already vaporizing. And this is, you know, fire is visible to us, but it works in an, a kind of in, in an invisible world. And what it, what it likes to eat uh, is, is vapor. It doesn't burn the log. It heats the log up until the hydrocarbons in the log release as vapor. And that's what's burning. And so that's, you know, think about a gas can. There's no gas in it, but it's full of vapor. You drop a match in there, you get a spectacular explosion. But there was, you know, there was an ounce of gas. How does it do it? It's the vapor. So it's it's the it's this shroud of gas that uh, of combustible gas that is surrounding the tree when it's 500 Celsius or the house. And a modern house like a Fort McMurray home contains an extraordinary amount of petroleum products. So it's really a firebomb once it gets up to a certain temperature. So these houses were burning down literally in five minutes. And I'm, you know, I'm a journalist and I'm sort of professionally skeptical. And when I first heard that from a firefighter, I was like, okay, you know, you're, you're adrenalized, you're, maybe you panicked, maybe you're in shock from what you saw. How can that be? And I pressed him and, and then other firefighters, other witnesses, we all got this to this sub 10 minute number. And then when I spoke to a physicist, um, Vito Babrowskis, who specializes in home combustion, he said, yeah, uh, yeah, that's possible, And but you probably want to look at the Hamburg firestorm if you want to understand what happened. And the Hamburg firestorm is one of the most infamous events of intentional arson from World War II when Allied bombers dropped thousands of tons of incendiaries on the city uh, of Hamburg, Germany, uh, 
over a several day period in the summer of 1943 and, and set off serial firestorms, not unlike what Fort McMurray experienced organically. And, you know, you write, uh, this This really caught me, that this idea that we're moving into a quote-unquote hotter, more flammable world, a kind of new age of wildfires, because as you note in the book, wildfires have always existed, but what we're, we're seeing something new. And I think back to then 2016, and, you know, it was 2016 in some sense a prelude of what we'd face in 2023, which has been, a, as you mentioned, one of the well, the worst wildfire season in Canadian history, also uh, a season in which we're setting uh, global heat records topple around the world. And if 2016 is a kind of prelude to 2023, what's 2023 a prelude to? Yeah. Um, so we first started seeing indicators that we were entering what I call 21st century fire. Um, 2001, the Chisholm Fire in Alberta, the one that generated greater fire intensity than any other fire ever measured was a real bellwether. It wasn't wide, widely reported outside of fire science circles and aerosol, you know, fire cloud uh, researching. Then um, we had uh, you know, the, the 2011 fire in Slave Lake. You know, that was a really big one for Alberta. That really put fire on the map, so to speak, for Canadians. But eight years earlier in 2003, outside Canberra, Australia, there was a fire tornado, and that was the first one of those ever documented. They're, these are very different than a fire whirl, which are those really frightening orange you know, fire whirls that you see spiraling up out of a wildfire. Those are real things. They've always had them. They also have those occurred firestorms as well. This was a, an EDF-3 tornado, 165-mile-an-hour winds generated by the energy of the fire. That So it it tears houses down and then burns everything. And there were, you know, just extraordinary things happened as a result of that. And um, North America, the Northern Hemisphere, did not experience its own fire tornado until two years after the Fort McMurray fire. And that was the Redding, uh, California car fire, C-A-R-R fire of 2018. And that generated another EF3 fire tornado and I went there for the Guardian to report on it. And I was there, you know, when the when the ground was basically still hot. And that was a level of destruction I've never seen. It was it was a post nuclear bomb scenario. Every single thing was broken or melted or burned or simply gone. A whole lot of things were just missing. All of these incidents that that we've been discussing are all indicators of what's to come. The motto of, of climate change could be, hold my beer. So you thought that was bad. You thought that was crazy. Uh, hold my beer. We are going to see things we've never seen before over and over and over again. And that's including fire behavior. But why I wrote this book, why I wrote Fireweather is because the people who experienced the Fort McMurray fire, who went through the car fire tornado, they saw glimpses of the future, and they are messengers. And I felt kind of duty-bound uh, to report and what what these visitors from the future have seen, because we're going to be seeing it too. Uh, so that's, you know, 2023 is, is another uh, kind of step jump um, into the future, and we're only halfway through fire season. 
Uh, I don't, I can't say there's going to be a fire tornado, but we're still blowing through all kinds of records on a regular basis and not just in the context of fire. Well, I, I want to get a sense of, without being reductionist, I want to get into the question of who's to blame. And I'm trying to come at this as charitably as as I can, but I'm thinking to the 2023 wildfire season, and there was a point at which oil and gas production and export was curtailed or shut down in Alberta because of the fires. Around the same time, a report came out that said a handful of oil and gas companies, including some Canadian companies, bore an outsized or an asymmetrical uh, uh, bore asymmetrical, uh, let's call it blame for climate change. I, I think as, as fires get worse, people are going to start looking around and saying, whose fault is this? And, and when you see these fires unravel and, and folks trying to make sense of them, and they look around and say, who's to blame? Is there an answer? Is it a simple saying, it's all of us, which seems to mean it's none of us? Or we can look around and say, well, no, it's it's industries that willingly marched us down this road. Yeah, uh, that's a, that is the, the question of the moment. Um, and there are many hundreds, if not thousands of lawsuits in the works uh, that are that seek to answer that question and, and resolve it. Uh, the, one of the things that I include and go into deeply in, in uh, fire weather is a history of climate science. And, and really, it, it's a question of who knew what when. It, these are really important questions if you're a journalist, also if you're a lawyer. Also, I think if you're a citizen now, what did we know? You know, I, I grew up in the middle of this. You know, there were always cars. There was always gas and oil. Um, you know, it, Exxon was a really good stock to own. Eunice Foote was a citizen scientist from upstate New York who performed what I would argue is the first modern climate uh, experiment. And that was comparing regular air, you know, taken from your living room to pure uh, carbon dioxide. And she put them both in, in sealed them up in, a, in glass cylinders and put them out in the sun. And she observed that carbon dioxide got really hot, really fast compared to the air in the, in the neighboring cylinder and took a lot longer to cool down. She knew that CO2 was a component of earth air. So that led her to wonder and speculate in 1856, an atmosphere that contained more CO2 would be noticeably warmer. Now, this is some lady from upstate New York, but she was doing good science and it wouldn't be until another 20 years later when this idea of spectrometers and, and, and the, the methods for measuring CO2 in a given unit of air became more sophisticated. But by the 1870s, 1870s, 150 years ago, it was understood that if you increased CO2 levels in the atmosphere, you would have warmer air. By the 1890s, Scientists were speculating that, wow, we are burning a lot of coal, and burning coal generates a lot of CO2, as all fires do. If we keep burning coal on an industrial scale and expanding at the rate that we're expanding in 1894, we could potentially alter the climate. This was before the car. Before the car was a, was a, a, a serious undertaking. 
by the 1950s, okay, this is another 60 years later, they had mass spectrometers and ways of measuring parts per million of CO2 in Earth's air. And they started doing it. And that's where the, we found the Keeling curve and the baseline of 280 parts per million around 1750 before intensive coal burning started. We are now over 420. So a, a more than 50% increase in atmospheric CO2. And just think about increasing anything, David, by 50%. If we increase the, the humidity in your office by 50%, you're going to have mold behind your books. If we increase your mortgage by 50%, you're going to be living somewhere else. If we increase um, the number of calories you consume, you know, you're going to change shape. You know, that, so it's, it's impactful. 50% by, of anything is noticeable. And now we are noticing it in, in temperature. So then in December 1967, the American petroleum industry, so this is like CAP, but for the United States, um, decided to do their own studies on what are the CO2 impacts of petroleum on our atmosphere. They hired the Stanford Research Institute. This was not a partisan, uh, you know, this was not the Fraser Institute. This was a serious science uh, agency. They gave them the, the data, they crunched it, and they said in 1968, in January 1968, this is, a, this is a watershed smoking gun report that lawyers are now using. It said to the API about the, the study commissioned by the API, American Petroleum Institute, um, it appears that CO2 is you know, one of the main emission, main byproducts of burning petroleum, and it has the potential to have extremely deleterious effects on our atmosphere and on human health. So our recommendation from these scientists, and this is 1968, before we're seeing a lot of climate change evidence you know, in our world, they're saying one of your top jobs needs to be getting a grip on your emissions and figuring out what the implications are. This was 1968, and this was noted at the highest levels. So they knew, Exxon knew, Shell knew, Mobile knew, anybody associated with the American Petroleum Institute knew. And so that would be automobile companies, that would be chemical manufacturers. Everybody was dialed into this and people actually reported on it in those days. And it, because it was nonpartisan, people were intrigued by this information. And, and, and legitimately, on, you know, earnestly concerned about it. But there was also a lot of other stuff going on. You know, Lake Erie was catching on fire because it was so polluted. So there was a lot of stuff going on then that was really in our face that we were dealing with also. And so um, the question of when do you become culpable for not acting on the information that you knew to be true is a really interesting one. Uh, is it a day? Is it a date? Is it an event? Uh, and that is going to be environmental law for the for the foreseeable future. And I think now we're in a place where um, lawsuits were against cigarette companies and against the tobacco industry, say in the the late '60s, 1970s. You know, you have this huge, powerful entity, the tobacco industry, that is socially acceptable that has enormous clout, that is very sophisticated in its messaging, uh, has a massive army of lawyers, 
and is normal on the landscape. Everyone's smoking indoors. It's very hard for young people to realize how normal. People smoked on planes, on trains, in bars, in their house, around babies. It was just normal what you did. So it's, and so it's, if you think about climate change now, you know, it's not going to be long before people are going to look at us and say, so you were driving a gas powered car and you knew this. How could you do that? That's what I would say, you know, if my partner took up smoking or if my kid took up smoking, I would say, you know, WTF, look, look around you. And that's where we're at now with climate and CO2 and industrial burning. And, and one way to, to wrap, a, a simple way to wrap your head around this, around the petroleum industry's role. This is not a, this is not a moral judgment. It's just a fact. The reason why we're interested in coal, in bitumen, in the case of Alberta, in oil and gas is because it burns. That's the only reason we go to the trouble of hauling it out of the ground by any means necessary, by fracking, by deep sea drilling, by melting bitumen, which is tar with untold billions of cubic feet of natural gas to turn it into something that can eventually become synthetic crude. The only reason we go to that trouble and frankly squander those resources is because the final product burns. So the petroleum industry, which is to say 80% of the modern energy industry, is at root a fire industry. That is the truth. That's what it is. But you could say the fire industry is, whether it wants to be or not, whether it intends to be or not, is also a CO2 industry. It's manufacturing intentionally by pulling hydrocarbons out of the ground that were quite happy where they were, thank you very much, pulling them out of the ground at great effort and expense and burning them intentionally, you are generating spectacular quantities of CO2 that have now altered our atmosphere for the foreseeable future and for the worst. In our last couple of moments, I want to pick up on that for the foreseeable future and for the worst bit. Uh, something has changed in recent years where extreme weather and the effects of climate change have become tangible for our folks in a way that they wouldn't have been in 1968 because the lake's on fire and, and the country's falling apart for political reasons. Now we can see the, the extreme heat, we can see the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the fires, we can feel things changing, we can feel it in our pocketbooks when now, there are supply chain issues or failed crops. So some, it's become more tangible. And this wildfire season has prompted the federal government in the United States and Canada to talk about coming up with new tactics, strategies, funds to deal with the, with wildfires. Uh, you know, what are we doing now at the institutional level to fight wildfires? And, and what do we need to do next to try to mitigate to the, to the extent possible the extreme damage they're causing? There's a, a real divide, and I would say a, a full-on disconnect. So you still have governments, companies, uh, individual people who are eagerly exploring for and exploiting fossil fuels as fast and as intensely as they can. And Alberta is a really good example. Texas is a really good example where climate change CO2 is really just not on the table for discussion. And it's not all cynical denial. It's just 
they're just not thinking about it. And, you know, I've made some sort of gentle inquiries and people are almost sort of nonplussed when I bring it up, in spite of the fact that it's been incredibly hot, incredibly dry, and incredibly fiery in Alberta. Folks, folks' heads are just in a different place. They're thinking about their jobs. They're thinking about their kids. They're thinking about the now. And so then on the other hand, you have other governments, other individuals uh, who are really focused on it. You have people, you know, there are whole um, uh, kind of areas of psychiatry and psychology now devoted to people who are so overwhelmed and, and terrified by the implications of climate change that they are, you know, become, you know, barely functional. It's incapacitating. And anybody, frankly, who's paying attention is, is seeing that, you know, and, and I know that, you know, you're on this frequency. I'm on this frequency. A lot of listeners probably are. Uh, it's really intense. And what's ha happening, particularly this summer, I, th I think, I honestly think in terms of policy and in terms of the front and centeredness of climate, uh, we're going to be in a different place in a year. That's how fast things are changing. Uh, when the Gulf of Mexico is pushing 90 degrees Fahrenheit, when water temperatures off Newfoundland and off Ireland are like five degrees out of skew, when, when Rome broke its heat record that it already broke just last year, broke it again by two degrees Celsius. These are massive jumps. And, and they're what some people could you know, describe as a phase shift. And this is uh, an irreversible change in a particular behavior uh, or system that will inform the future for the foreseeable future. And a lot of people think that's what we've arrived at in terms of ocean temperature, land temperature, fire behavior. Uh, and that's really going to impact uh, crops and our pocketbooks and, and every aspect of our lives. You know, our, our pocketbooks may become almost minor details compared to some of the things that will be facing us, you know, in the next, I would say, probably single digit years. Um, so uh, what's incredible, though, is, you know, again, it's like watching a smoker smoke who knows that smoking is going to kill her and they do it anyway. And, and I think we I think addiction isn't an inappropriate term to use in terms of our deep entanglement with everything that petroleum affords us. And that's where we have to also face the fact petroleum got us where we are today. You know, you live what looks like on the screen anyway to be a beautiful life and you really have petroleum to thank for that. And so do I. And, and the mobility that we have the wealth that we have, uh, it's accelerated everything. So we've been able to, in a century, uh, achieve millennia's worth of progress and wealth accumulation, but all at the expense of the future. We borrowed it all from the years ahead of us. And as we enter those years and see the interest rate rise and rise and rise, um, we're going to be feeling it. And we're going to really question our self-satisfaction um, of 2010. That's going to seem like a quaint and innocent, naive time shortly. And there's this process of moving people um, into that awareness is a gradual one. And, and, and I, I really spent time on that in the Fort McMurray fire, the power and, and utility of the Fort McMurray fire as a, a place to learn from is watching one of them one of those aspects is watching people take in the reality of the fire so these are folks who are living a normal day 
a pretty excellent day, a beautiful warm spring day. They had a good job. They were on top of their mortgage. They've got a lovely family at home. Uh, they're headed off to work. They came home from work around lunchtime, uh, and they see a wall of flame 300 feet high and you know 100 meters tall and kilometers wide where their city should be. And that's too much for people to take in. And I spent a lot of time with people asking them, so what did you do then? What did you think then? How did you feel then? How did you integrate this colossal violation to everything that you know and understand about the world? That's what climate change is going to be doing to us, piecemeal. And so we're all going to be at different stages of understanding and, and action, and that's going to be informed by our politics, by our own psychology, by the communities we're in, by the ways that climate change touches us. So it's going to be very uneven. And it's not going to be an either or. And going into the future, I suspect that we will be burning coal for the rest of our lives. We'll be burning oil and gas for the rest of our lives. We're also going through this incredibly rapid energy transition, which is really exhilarating and amazing to see. And uh, you know, this, this has been a, quite a dire conversation, but we have to remember that planet Earth is the only place in the solar system, really in the galaxy that we know of, whose default impulse is to grow and flourish. That's what it wants to do. You can send the worst fire in the world across a landscape. Something is going to grow back there. It might be a microbe. It might be an oak tree. But something will fill that void and grow, will be alive. That's what's great about this planet. And fire, industrial fire, is at direct acting in direct opposition to that growing impulse. It is demonstrably a killing energy. And the longer we do it, the more death will result. And that it's a crude way of putting it, but it, it's not a moral thing. It's not an ethical thing. It's not a political thing. It's just physics and chemistry that don't mess around and they really don't care what you think. So, But the bottom line is there's a healthy planet that wants to happen. And we're part of that. And we can be part of that. We've been part of it. Many of us are part of it right now. And we can be... Uh, companions in that, allies in that, going into the future. I think that's an extraordinarily hopeful note on which to end. So I'm going to, I'm going to end it right there. This was an extraordinary, an extraordinary conversation about an extraordinary book. The book is Fire Weather: The Making of a Beast. It is a must read. Go pick it up now. You've, you've got to read it. I mean, I, I we, we talk to a lot of folks on here and recommend a lot of books. Read this book right now. Go get it right now. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. David, uh, really, really good to talk to you and spend time with you. And I, I hope we get to visit again sometime. I hope so, too. And as always, my thanks go out to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah who make the show not just possible but infinitely better than it would be without them. And to all of you, a quick note again, this is our last episode until the week after Labor Day. I'm going to go try to salvage something of a summer, and we hope to see you back here then. Thanks for listening. Thanks.